0: Today is one of those texts that makes me realize the beauty of expositional preaching through whole books of the Bible, verse by verse. Full transparency, if we weren't going through the book of Genesis, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, I would never preach this text. But this is where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? Do we believe what God's word says or not? 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says all scripture all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for reproof for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work either we believe that or we don't i believe it I believe all scripture, including this weird genealogy in Genesis 10, is breathed out by God and profitable for us as God's people. So let's dive in to God's inerrant, infallible, inspired, profitable word together. Hopefully I can make it through these names. Genesis chapter 10, verses 1 through 32. This is the word of the Lord. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tiras. The sons of Gomer, Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togarmah. The sons of Javan, Elisha, Tarshish, Katim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans, in their nations. The sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. The sons of Cush, Seba, Havilah, Sabta, Rama, and Sabteka. The sons of Rama, Sheba, and Dadan. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalna, in the land of Shinar. From that land he went into Assyria and built Nineveh, Rehoboth-ir, Kala, and Rezin between Nineveh and Kalah that is, the great city. Egypt fathered Lurim, Anamim, Lehabim, Naphtuhim, Pathrusim, Kasluhim, from whom the Philistines came, and Kapturim. Canaan fathered Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth. And the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, the Arkites, the Sinites, the Arvadites, the Zimorites, and the Hamathites. Afterward, the clans of the Canaanites dispersed, and the territory of the Canaanites extended from Sidon in the direction of Gerar as far as Gaza, and in the direction of Sodom, Gomorrah, Adama, and Zaboyim as far as Lasha. These are the sons of Ham by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. To Shem, also the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem, Elam, Asher, Arpachshad, Lud, and Aram. The sons of Aram, Uz, Hol, Gether, and Mash. Arpachshad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. For in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan fathered Almadad, Shelef, Hazarmaveth, Jera, Hadoram, Uzal, Dikla, Obol, Abimael, Sheba, Ophir, Havilah, and Jobal. All these were the sons of Joktan. The territory in which they lived extended from Mesha in the direction of Sephar, to the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies in their nations, and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. <laughs> made it. Well, many of you know that last week was Cruz's birthday, and that he turned 13. Uh, As a part of his birthday, uh, I wanted Cruz to understand where we came from as Cunninghams. Because knowing where you come from helps ground you. It gives you a sense of where you're going. Over the last year, I've been studying and learning things about the Cunningham family, going all the way back to Scotland. While I won't bore you with the details, it was quite fascinating and enlightening. Understanding where you came from often tells you a lot about who you are. In some senses, that's what we see in this text If you're new here today, I'll preface this sermon by saying this isn't a normal sermon. After having just read the text, I'm going to fly at somewhat of a high level to try to pull out some major themes and truths that we're meant to see here. I could walk through each of these names and show you exactly where these names end up on a map today. In fact, it's quite interesting to do so. Uh, Many scholars, even non-Christian scholars, are impressed with just how well this table of nations in Genesis 10 maps on to all of the peoples of the entire world today. And Moses didn't even have Google to, to compile all of this. Think about that. Moses gives this list and it's accurate historically. Again, This points to both the veracity or the the truthfulness of scripture, as well as its divine nature. The only way that Moses would be able to compile such a list in his day, like this, is through divine inspiration. If you have time in your own study, and you're interested in mapping out all of these names to modern day people groups, you can actually do it. Both James Boyce and Richard Phillips, they're both commentators or pastors, they provide great one-to-one lists like that. But that's not what I'm going to do today. Because while I believe it's fascinating, I think it misses the main point that this section's trying to tell us. I want us to see that this section is somewhat of a map. It's a map that tells a story of the rest of Genesis, and the rest of the Bible for that matter. Maps are great, but in order to read them correctly, you need a key. So, what do the names on this map mean? What do they mean? Well, the key for this map is found in last week's text. I want to remind us of what we saw there. Genesis chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. Genesis 9, verses 24 through 27. I'm not going to read it for us, but put your eyes on it. When Noah woke up from his hangover, he proceeded with cursing and blessing. Cursing and blessing. He cursed Ham, or more correctly, cursed Ham's sons and descendants, Canaan. He blessed Shem and blessed Japheth through Shem. Ham, you're cursed. Shem, you're blessed. Japheth, you'll be all right if you stay with Shem. You'll be blessed through his tents. Now, let's understand what's meant by cursing. We're not talking about swear words here. When you think of cursing... Think the absence of God's blessing. Think damnation and being an enemy of God. Remember what we've seen Moses doing for a long while now in Genesis, all the way back since Genesis 3.15. He's drawing two lines. One line is the line of the serpent, the line of Cain, Lamech, and now Ham. These are the enemies of God. In this genealogy, in Genesis 10, the line of Ham is in verses 6 through 20. And one commentator writes this. He says, the descendants of Canaan read like a most wanted list of Israel's inveterate enemies. That's right. I'm just going to very briefly cherry pick a couple of them. Canaan and the Canaanites a group known for sexual immorality, idolatry, and rebellion against God. They're the ones in the promised land when Israel enters in Joshua. Canaan and the Canaanites. Second, the Egyptians, the ones who would ultimately enslave the Israelites for years. The Babylonians. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Babylonians. The Assyrians, or the Ninevites. We read in Jeremiah 50, verse 17. Israel is a hunted sheep, driven away by lions. First, the king of Assyria devoured him, And now, at last, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has gnawed his bones. Do you get the gist? The list of names in Ham's line are enemies of God and enemies of his people. One more. Look at verses 8 through 10 in our text. Verses 8 through 10. Cush fathered Nimrod. He was the first on earth to be a mighty man. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Might not sound so bad on the surface, but we're not meant to read Nimrod's accomplishments in a positive light here. The three Hebrew letters that make up Nimrod's name actually mean rebel. And this guy isn't meant to, seen, uh, to be seen as a deer hunter who was really good at it. A mighty hunter. He's meant to be seen as a conqueror, one of the, the first world leaders, a hunter of men. We, we read the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. If you know anything about Genesis 11, the text will be in next Sunday. You know that Babel isn't a great place known for its godliness. But I want us to see this. These places, Babylon, Egypt, Assyria, Nimrod himself, they're all wildly successful. This isn't even Nimrod bragging on himself. This is God's own estimation of Nimrod. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. So God looked down and saw that this guy was one of the most powerful men on earth at the time. He's influential. And successful. The land that's described here as Canaan's in verse 19, it's actually better than that of Shem and Japheth's land. And yet, they're cursed by God. They don't have His blessing. Matthew Henry writes this. He says, those under the curse of God may yet perhaps thrive and prosper greatly in this world. For we cannot know love or hatred, the blessing or the curse by what is before us, by but what is in us. The curse of God always works really and always terribly. But sometimes it is a secret curse, a curse to the soul. And it does not work immediately but sinners are by it reserved for and bound over to a day of wrath. Canaan here has a better land than either Shem or Japheth, and yet they, Shem and Japheth, have a better lot, for they inherit the blessing. You see that? It's possible to have all the world's riches and fame and still be cursed of soul. The point we're meant to see is that the cursed line of Ham are in league with the serpent and the enemies of God. Then, there's the other line. Not the line of cursing, but the line of blessing. The line of Shem, in verses 21 through 31. Again, hear this loud and clear. Blessing doesn't equal financial wealth or great stuff. It means God's favor. Think Life, hope, salvation, forgiveness, God's promises, God's favor, blessing. If Ham was the line of the serpent in Genesis 3.15, this is the line of the seed of the woman, the one who will crush the serpent's head. I want to point you here to verse 21 in our text. It says, To Shem also... The father of all the children of who? Eber. This is out of order. Eber doesn't come in the lineage until verse 24, actually. Our Pachishad fathered Shelah, and Shelah fathered Eber. Moses is telling us, all the way back in verse 21, that this is where we're headed here. Focus in on this guy. He's important. Get this. Eber is where we get the name Hebrew, which is what the Israelites were called before they were Israelites. Look over at Genesis chapter 14, verse 13. Genesis 14, verse 13. It says, Then one who had escaped came and told Abram, the Hebrew. Abram, the Hebrew. This is where this line is headed. Now, The rest of the book of Genesis will focus in on this line and the line of Ham, who, as we said before, is going to give God's people all kinds of trouble. So there's the line of Ham, the line of Shem. Then there's the line of Japheth in verses 2 through 5. The key verse here is verse 5. Line of Japheth. From these, the coastland people, spread in their lands, each with his own language, by their clans in their nations. What's meant by this phrase, coastland peoples, is that this line is way out on the fringes. They were out as far as they could be. The geographical horizon, so to speak. Again, to be blessed... They better find their way to Shem and his tents. That's where the blessing's going to be. So there's our key for the map. Ham is Israel's enemies. Shem is the Semitic people. And then Japheth, the people who live way out there somewhere. The Gentiles. Okay. Now before we move forward with a, a thematic look at this text... I want us to understand that this genealogy is highly structured for meaning. And are any of us surprised by that? We've seen it in the creation account, we saw it in the genealogy in Genesis 4, and here we are again. This isn't just a random list of names. In fact, if you look closely, it's not even merely individuals, there's whole nations listed or people groups. Geographic regions are listed. And for anyone who's keeping score out there, did you notice how many nations are listed? Seventy. Seventy. Seven times ten, that's how it's arranged. Both numbers of completion or fullness. This is the table of nations. And by the end of Genesis, as we're zeroed in on God's people, check this out. Genesis 46, verse 27. Genesis 46, verse 27. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were what? Seventy. Exodus chapter 1, verse 5. All the descendants of Jacob were seventy persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Seventy. John Selhammer comments, before Abraham, the nations, right here in our text in Genesis 10, the nations numbered 70. After Abraham, at the close of the book, the seed of Abraham numbered 70, the same as that of the nations. He who was taken from the nations has reached the number of the nations. Such careful attention to detail suggests that the author of the book has in mind a specific understanding of the role of the seed of Abraham. By correlating the number of nations with the number of the seed of Abraham, he holds Abraham's seed before the reader as a new humanity, and Abraham himself as a kind of second Adam, the father of many nations. In this chosen seed, God's original blessing will be restored. Now, with all of that in mind, I want to make some high-level observations about this text. I'm grateful to David Helm for these observations. Speaking on this text, Helm notes these three points. He says, From one man, all the nations came. To one man, all the nations must come. To all the nations The church should go. So, borrowing this structure, I want to consider these three truths. Number one, from one man, all the nations came. From one man, all the nations came. Notice the bookends to this text. Verses 1 and 32. Verse 1, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. Then at the end of the text, verse 32, these are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations and from these nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. Moses is going out of his way with these bookends to tell us that the nations came from one man, Noah. In other words, it doesn't matter who you are. This is your story. If if Ancestry.com went back this far, you would be connected to Noah through one of these people. Isn't that wild to think about? Further, in our day and age, especially post 2020, the volume in our culture has been turned way up on differences between the races. There are differences. And God made those differences to be beautiful. But this text wants to show us that there's one race, the human race, and we're all one. That's what we should be turning the volume up on, our common, shared humanity. Even though the world will end up divided geographically and linguistically after next week's text. We're united to one another by ancestry, according to this text. We all come from one man, and we're all fallen, sinful people. But we can all have the same hope. From one man, all the nations came. Point two, to one man, all the nations must come. To one man, all the nations must come. To understand this, we need to foreshadow what's about to happen in Genesis 11. Uh, Next week, we'll see these nations actually scatter all over the face of the earth and spread out all over the place. This genealogy in Genesis 10 already points to that reality. Yet, what we'll see is, is that the Bible and God himself begins to zero in on one line, the line of blessing. The line of salvation. If you want to be saved, you've got to find this line. We're going to see that over and over and over again. We've already seen it in Genesis. We'll see it again. God unconditionally chooses a blessed line. God showed regard for Cain, or for Abel, and not Cain. Then Seth, then Shem, and not Ham. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. And when you get to the New Testament in the Gospels, you see these genealogies that trace through this line. And they end up with Jesus. He has the blessing. He is the blessing. And if you want to be saved, you've got to find him. See this. In in our text, there's a refrain in verses 5, 20, and 31. Verse 5, verse 20, and verse 31, referencing lands, languages, clans, and nations. Three times, Moses reminds us of these to show us that there's going to be real division and real separation in the world. Yet, by the end of chapter 11... We're back zeroed in on one man, Abram, and his line, which leads to Christ, the only name by which we can be saved. Hear this. We talked earlier about blessing and cursing. Blessing and cursing. It's only through Jesus Christ that you can be blessed. Life, hope, God's favor and salvation. But all of that's only available to us because Jesus chose to be cursed for us. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14. Paul writes this. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through what? Faith. Do you see that? He, Jesus, became a curse so that we could be blessed. He took on our sin and our punishment so that we could be free and reconciled to God so that we could be blessed. And all of this, all of this is accessed through faith, through believing in, through trusting in Jesus Christ. There's only one way to have this blessing, and it's through him. So I'll ask the question, have you trusted in Jesus Christ? If you haven't, I invite you to do that today. His blessing of eternal salvation is available to all who believe in him. We heard that so clearly in our assurance of pardon today. Turn from sin and trust in Christ. If you'd like to talk more about how to do that, I would love to talk to you after the service. Also, Rob and Ben will be standing out at the black table. They would love to talk to you as well. From one man, all the nations come. To one man, all the nations must come. Point three, to all the nations, the church should go. To all the nations, the church should go. Remember the refrain in our text? Lands, languages, clans, and nations? Flip with me over to Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. Revelation 7, verses 9 through 12. This is the scene around the throne of Christ in heaven. John writes this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and around the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory, and wisdom and thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Every tribe, every people, every language and nation, will be represented around the throne of Christ as those who have been saved and therefore worship him forever. But how do we get there if we live in such a divided world with cursed lines and coastland people way out there who live on the fringes of the world? How do we get from here to there? Let's start with Luke chapter 10, verses 1 and 2. Luke 10, 1 and 2. After this, the Lord, meaning Jesus, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every, town, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest." Many of your translations probably have a footnote on the number that Jesus sent out. Some manuscripts have that Jesus sent out how many? Seventy! Seventy! The point being that he's sending out missionaries to the nations. The exact number of nations that we see in the table of nations in Genesis 10. Regardless of the number here in Luke 10, The point is still the same, whether it's 72 or 70. Jesus is calling laborers into his harvest. He's calling us right now as Santa Cruz Baptists to pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Hear this. Right now, we as a church are partnered with Scott and Cindy Logston who are missionaries to Istanbul, Turkey. They're reaching the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope over time to partner with other international missionaries. We hope that some of you become international missionaries. We hope to go and support our missionaries on short-term and long-term trips in the coming year and years. But one thing that we can all do right now is pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In fact, our missions group that's been meeting over the last year has committed to set our alarms on our phones or watches for 10.02 every day to pray Luke chapter 10, verse 2. Jesus, Jesus' good news is for the nation's. We read this last week, but I'm going to read it again. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of who? All nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Do you see that? We're to make disciples of all nations. The gospel isn't just for a small group of people. It's for everyone. Jesus commands us to go with this gospel to every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's what he commands us to do. Fast forward to the book of Acts, right before ascending to heaven. Look at what Jesus says. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you, speaking to his disciples, will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He tells his disciples that they're to be witnesses. And he starts with their own backyard. Jerusalem, to the Shemites. The Israelites need to come to Jesus too. They need to hear the gospel. But then it quickly expands out further and further and farther to the ends of the earth. Remember those coastline peoples? The Japhethites? The ones out on the geographical horizon? Jesus calls us to even go there. You're going to go there as my witnesses. Here's the deal. Jesus' disciples heard that, and they took it seriously. They didn't think he was joking. They actually obeyed him. Flip over to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, verses 4 through 5. It says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Then, look down at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to where? To Gaza. This is a desert place. Gaza. Remember Genesis 10? This is Canaanite territory. Ham's people." You know the rest of the story here. Philip, a Shemite, is told by God to go join this chariot. He does. There's an Ethiopian eunuch in it, a Cushite, who comes from Ham. This Ethiopian just so happens to be reading Isaiah 53. Philip explains to him that that story or that text is about Jesus. The man believes. He he trusts in the line of blessing. Jesus Christ. He's baptized. Philip miraculously continues on in a missionary journey. Acts chapter eight. Fast forward to Paul, this guy named the Apostle Paul. Paul, a Shemite, is miraculously converted on the road to Damascus. His life is completely transformed. God sends him on a missionary journey. He ends up in Athens, Greece, Japheth's territory. He's preaching Christ to the ends of the earth. He's obeying Jesus. What does he tell them? What did he tell them? Acts chapter 17, verses 24 through 31. Acts 17, 24 through 31. This is what Paul says to the Japhethites. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And here, look at verse 26 and he made from one man, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Does that sound familiar? an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. What did he tell them from one man, all the nations came to one man. All the nations must come. The result of this is that many of these Japhethites, Gentiles, they repent and they believe in Jesus. They enter the tents of Shem. They inherit the blessing. They're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. All nations belong to Christ. and He's worthy of their, their and our worship. God is committed to the glory of his name in all nations. And as John Piper has reminded us so often over the years, worship of Christ is the goal of missions. Worship of Christ is the goal of missions. In other words, missions isn't the goal of the church. Worship of God is. Further, Piper rightly says that missions exist because worship of Christ does not. One day, every tribe, tongue, and nation will bow down before the throne of Christ in worship. Until that day, we have been called as Christ ambassadors to go and make disciples of all nations, so that Christ will be worshipped and glorified to the ends of the earth. That's the kind of church that I want us to be. Let's pray.